This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mortar. First grade teacher Katie Paul is wrapping up her inaugural year at a charter school in Broomfield. She makes about $30,000 a year. It is tricky to, you know, have a full-time career, but know that it's not enough. I mean, it gets you through life, but there's not a lot of extra spending money or anything like that. It's just kind of like the bare minimum. Paul has summers off, giving her time to work a second job and make a little extra money. She hopes to start saving for a house, for a master's degree, and to move out of her parents' house. I feel like I'm 18 again, and I don't really feel like an adult because I have to still abide by the rules. And it is why she joined a new online service called buyateacher.com. She put a profile on the site offering to tutor or do odd jobs. Brian Carruthers of Denver is the site's founder. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Let me say that buy a teacher is spelled B-Y, a teacher, not buy as in purchase. Uh, Anyhow, we heard from, from Katie there. More experienced teachers have also signed up. What do they tell you about why they need second jobs? I think there's a range, of course, as as in anything. Um, I think, like Katie mentioned, um, I think sometimes it's, particularly for teachers starting out, it's really a financial need to make ends meet. Um, I think uh, on you can go to the other end of the spectrum for teachers uh, who are now retired and they're looking to stay active in the community or bring in a little bit of supplemental income. And then you have teachers in the middle of the range of their careers, and I think that run, runs the gamut of uh, needs-based to sometimes there is a little bit of extra time in the summer and uh, it's nice to earn a little extra spending money. Teachers' salaries do, of course, move up with experience, and when they get advanced degrees, the Colorado Department of of education tells us the statewide average teacher salary is $51,204. That's for the 2015-16 school year. Uh, do you really think there will be widespread teacher demand for this website to put them in touch with you know potential employers? I do. I think the goal of what we're trying to do is to make it easier uh, for teachers uh, to earn additional income if they're looking to, so that we're not asking teachers to go out and do marketing and find clients and keep track of invoicing and manage payment, and we're trying to aggregate a platform that makes it easier for teachers to do those things so that they can spend more time teaching, so that they can spend more time maybe with some additional professional training, uh, or taking some much-deserved and needed time off during the summer as Oh, well. there's that too, <laughs> there, there is that piece. We reached out to the Colorado Department of Education, by the way, and they say they don't track the number of teachers taking extra jobs. Um, but do you have some sense of that? I know there have been some I, surveys. Yeah, I think the one that I've seen is, uh, was a U.S. News uh, story. I think it was around 2014. But that indicated that in Colorado, about 21.5%, close to 22% of teachers in Colorado have a second job. Uh, and I don't think that that fully captures retired teachers. Uh, I don't think that fully captures uh, teachers who may be doing one or two gigs as one-off opportunities to earn income either. So I, in my opinion, I think it's actually probably a little bit higher than what that would capture. All right. So at least one in five teachers, right. possibly more. And I think that that survey showed that Colorado actually had a bit of a higher rate than other states in the in the nation. Yeah, nationwide, it's uh, about 16%, a little over 16%, according to that same same uh, study. How did this idea come to you? Yeah, it was really a culmination of many different 
uh, thoughts I think I've had over a couple of years. Uh, I have a lot of uh, friends and family who are teachers. Uh, so um, certainly something personal to me there in terms of what that profession means and what it takes to be a teacher. Uh, also, I had, I think, the the fortunate opportunity to attend a lot of schools that had a very close sense of community uh, surrounding them and a lot of community support growing up. And now as I've become an adult and I'm looking at that same equation but uh, through a different lens, it, it became clear to me that growing additional community support around education and schools was something that uh, maybe was lacking a bit. Um, and so that combination, knowing what teachers were doing um, on their off time, knowing what it meant to try to make ends meet as a teacher, and then also wanting to engage community members uh, more in education to reflect some of what uh, my great experience growing up was, led me to look into what was out there and, and ultimately culminated in uh, buyateacher.com. This is not nonprofits, uh, so you're taking a cut, aren't you? Correct, yeah. So we, we a couple reasons why we wanted to approach it that way. Um, there are a lot of nonprofits and there are a lot of public policy efforts around similar missions and similar causes. Didn't want to be another group attracting similar donor dollars to do this. And so part of our inspiration was looking for a way to attract new dollars, dollars that are out there, dollars that are purchasing power for people in the community that are already being spent, but perhaps we could come up with a way to capture them and keep them within the educational ecosystem. And you do make some kind of contribution to a school district, Cor right? Correct. So 2% of each transaction is uh, donated to the PTA or PTO uh, at the school where the teacher teaches. And what's your cut from the teacher? 20% uh, is the total uh, piece that Buy a Teacher keeps. 3% uh, goes towards third-party credit card processing. 2% goes to the PTA or PTO. And then 15% stays with us to continue to host and expand the platform and then continue to market it. Do you want to make this nationwide? Yeah, I think there's a, a very big need for this to be nationwide. I'm in Colorado, uh, so that's where we're starting. This strikes me another as another aspect of the gig economy in some ways that it's you know following on on the coattails of Uber and you know all of these other sites that we've seen pop up. What are the kinds of jobs that teachers want to do? I mean, is it mostly in the education world, like tutoring, or you know? Yeah, I think I, I it's a pretty broad spectrum of what teachers are doing. And so we're starting there with a pragmatic approach. Uh, so it ranges from uh, handyman, handywoman services to painting to then tutoring or music lessons. I think the general feedback, and I think teachers are teachers because it's a calling. So I think in general, they'd like to be doing things that are along that spectrum. And I've had some great conversations with teachers about how we may be expanding what we're doing to offer some more after-school and summer programs that are in alignment with that, that can be part of what teachers are looking to do. Um, what do you mean? So, uh, it would be a uh, opportunities for teachers to uh, have uh, after-school programs or over-the-summer programs that are driven by what they're passionate about teaching for children to attend where they could earn some additional income doing mm. that, but it wouldn't be the type of odd jobs or painting houses or childcare or some of the things that they're currently doing. 
This is a brand new site. Has anyone been hired yet, or are we in the theoretical? Yeah, we ha- we've had a couple transactions. Uh, we expect that, obviously, teachers, for the most part right now, unless they're maybe a substitute or retired, have full-time jobs. Uh, so we expect that as we head into summer here, uh, it will pick up uh, substantially from where it's been. Does this take away arguments for increasing teacher pay? I don't think it does. Um, I actually think, again, we're, we're hoping that this attracts uh, additional attention, additional conversations like we're having to the reality that teachers are doing this on the side, to the reality of what teachers are being paid, so that it becomes more of a common part of our community's understandings and part of our dialogue. How do you verify that someone's a teacher? Uh, We ask during the registration process that they provide their teaching credential, Hmm. and we can also look it up by name. Uh, And in the case of independent or charter schools where they may not be credentialed through the state, uh, we uh, check with the school where the teacher teaches. All right. So that presumably protects the person doing the hiring. But then you have teachers potentially going into people's homes. How do you protect them? Yeah, I think it's similar to a setup that they're they're currently under, which is they're a direct contractor, really, to who's hiring them. And so we ask, and and of course, within our community guidelines, um, require that everybody pay attention to safety and and take best practices into consideration. There's there's no way really for us to ensure that somebody isn't going to do something stupid. But um, another dimension of the gig economy. Right, in many it, ways. Correct, Brian. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Brian Carruthers of Denver, founder of Buy a Teacher again. By a Teacher dot com. What we are afraid of isn't necessarily what is most likely to kill us. Take terrorist attacks, for example, or superbugs. Much of what hastens our demise is closer to home and preventable. CPR health reporter John Daly has the story of a community that's trying to reduce a risk that is right in front of them. First, what are some of the big killers? Cancer, heart disease. Here's Dr. Tista Ghosh. Lower respiratory disease, stroke. Ghosh is the deputy chief medical officer at the state health department. Further down the list come Alzheimer's disease and diabetes. Most of the top 10, though, share a common link. Obesity is sort of the key risk factor. And it's that key risk factor, obesity, which is at the heart of changes unfolding in Denver's Westwood neighborhood. On a sunny, windy spring day, school lets out at Monroe Elementary. A group of kids strolls into an alley across from the school. 10-year-old Joshua Badillo leads the way on his bike. Yeah, I go this way every day to school. He didn't used to. He tells me the alley used to be lined with graffiti, overflowing dumpsters, even dead rodents. How it's changed is in the old times when I came here driving my bike or walking, the only thing I saw was trash. Now it's looking nice. Now, he says, kids use it all the time to walk to school, play soccer, ride skateboards and bikes. That's because residents teamed up with community groups to clean it up, ditching the dumpsters and painting colorful murals and mountains on its walls. Norma Brambilla helped lead the transformation of what's now called Friendship Alley. She tells me through a translator that the health of her five kids was a big motivation. That's why I do it and that's why the volunteers do it is because we want to see more physical changes, more healthy options for our kids. 
The work on the alley is part of a broad push to improve what's called the built environment in Westwood. It's part of a national movement to improve health by improving infrastructure, everything from parks and paths to better lighting, all of it to encourage folks to get up and keep moving. But Westwood has a lot of hurdles to overcome. Rachel Cleves directs the community group Westwood Unidos. Westwood is definitely a place that is auto-oriented and it's very difficult to feel safe and comfortable walking. She says the largely Hispanic neighborhood is the youngest and one of the poorest in Denver. It has no grocery stores, no rec center, few parks, and the city's highest childhood obesity rate. It's just kind of a lot of things going on to make it difficult for a child to be thriving and healthy. Maricruz Herrera says her three kids struggle with obesity. A lack of easily accessible, safe options is an obstacle. It's really hard to me to say to my kids, no, you cannot play outside. Just play inside of the house. Herrera is one of dozens of neighborhood residents who turn out to celebrate the opening of La Casita Community House. The once abandoned site is now a remodeled bright orange building that will host everything from motivational classes to nutrition and Zumba. No, it absolutely can make a difference. That's Gretchen Armijo. She's the city's built environment administrator. Yes, that is the title. It's a new position that started just a couple of years ago. She says only about 30% of our health is determined by genetics and family history. So the rest, 70%, is shaped by things like social and economic factors and health behaviors. When you have the youngest neighborhood in Denver and most children and the least amount of parkland, that's a mismatch that really can make it difficult for kids and their families to stay healthy. City Councilman Paul Lopez represents this district. I grew up here. I'm born and raised here. And, you know, uh, from what I can remember, there's always been more liquor store than there has been grocery stores. And that's a problem. But, he says, things are starting to turn around. The neighborhood won a $1 million grant from the Colorado Health Foundation. Now a vacant lot is being turned into a new park. An existing park is getting a big facelift. There are now 400 backyard gardens and a new food co-op is in the works. The spruced-up alley and La Casita are just the start, says Councilman Lopez. This is a milestone. It's, it's basically a community center in an area that does not have that many spaces for community centers, and this is a big deal. The health department's Dr. Tista Ghosh would agree. She says big-deal public health crises like the Zika virus or Ebola may grab headlines. But the main things that affect Coloradans are things that affect obesity. Like, she says, the built environment they live in. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And we'll be right back with an author who thinks fiction is a great device to talk about the very real problem of climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. News about climate change can get so bleak, you tune it out, says author Paolo Bajigalupi of Peonia. And yet he chose it as the subject of his sci-fi thriller, The Water Knife, which has just come out in paperback. You see, Bajigalupi thinks fiction can humanize what's at stake in a way that some new climate report can't. He sets his book in the West in the not-too-distant future. It's a tale of two cities. Las Vegas is thriving because it has water, while Phoenix is bone dry and feels apocalyptic. We spoke last year at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. Thanks for being with us, Paolo. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we talk about characters, 
I want you to paint us a picture of what life is like in this novel. Um, a person's quality of life depends on whether they're a water have or have not. So let's say I'm lucky enough to have water. I'm likely living in something called an arcology. What is an arcology? How do the water haves live? Okay, so an arcology is an essentially nearly self-contained living structure. It's, um, I'm really interested in the idea of buildings and living environments that, that recycle everything that they can, that recycle all their waste, that, that grow food off of their waste, that, that recycle all of their water, that reprocess it again and again, things like that. Uh, so that the, the arcologies are built to really bring things into them, but not let very much leave them. And so people can live their entire lives inside of them. They have food, they have recreation, they have entertainment, they have their jobs. And arcologies in, in the story of the water knife have been built because the environment outside is becoming more and more unfriendly. And so it's more and more reasonable to sort of try to keep everything inside. And these have basically replaced the suburbs because suburbs have desiccated. In Phoenix, for instance, they can't provide water to all of these homes that have sprawled out. So people are sort of building up and in. Yeah. If um, they have the means. Right. The, the, the water haves are consolidating. Or, or actually, maybe the best way to describe it is that the haves are consolidating around water. The have-nots uh, can't afford to buy into an ecology, they, uh, arcology. They can't pay the rent. They can't uh, get the entrance fees. And, you know, the interior of, a, of an arcology, the whole way I just thought of it in my own head was that it would be full of waterfalls, hanging gardens. And then outside of those places, out in those suburbs, out in those places where the water has been turned off, all you have is, you know, the occasional coyote running between the, the suburban houses that are completely empty and dry and are useless now that they don't have any water coming out of their taps. One of the things that really strikes me about development is that you can have all sorts of wonderful amenities. You know, you can have granite countertops, you can have three and a half baths, you can have all sorts of wonderful things. And as soon as you stop being able to put water into the house and take water out of the house, as soon as your toilets don't flush and your taps don't work, that house is valueless, and that, that beautiful granite that you paid so much for to put on a countertop is just a hunk of rock. Why don't we have you read a description from the book of a dust storm? So this is a, a sense of what people are living with when they're not in an arcology. The storm intensified. Day turned to night. Sand and grit beat against the windows, shaking them. Conversations were muttered and desultory, oppressed by the raging elements outside. Most of them were out of Phoenix trying to get somewhere else. Some of them had passes that would get them into Nevada or else California, some all the way to Canada. All of them were wistful for what they were leaving behind. All were desperate for the place ahead to be better. Immigration winds up being a big theme in this book because the lack of water um, in light of climate change has just created all these new patterns and people who want to go where the water is and the people who don't want them in their backyards. Right. We cluster around areas that are supportive of us. And one of the things you notice about development in the West is you only find towns right next to springs or right next to rivers. Um, And so in this future that I was sort of looking at where so many things are destabilized by climate change, where whole towns are drying up, where the land can't support people or cattle or food, where huge hurricanes are smashing up against the Gulf Coast, where seawalls are falling and the the coasts are flooding in some cases. You know, in all of those cases, it's putting people on the move. They're all hunting for some better place than where they're at. And 
all of the states that have more stability are like, no, 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 that's a few too many refugees for us, thanks. And so they all start setting up their own sort of border patrols, and they all start locking down their borders. And there's sort of a, a, a very aggressive sort of states' rights movement going on where the federal government is weak and staggering around trying to help the refugees, and the states are all sitting there going, not inside of my territory, they aren't coming here. Water in this world has become a highly tradable commodity, much more like a stock. Um, and even the pumps reflect this. Yeah. Um, so in, in Phoenix, there are uh, pumps that have been put into the ground by the Red Cross and Chinese philanthropic organizations. And they're sunk down in these aquifers um, below Phoenix so they can pump up water. But there's, there's a limit to how much water can be pumped up. And so all of the wells that have been sunk are price controlled. And so they monitor the depth of the aquifer and they set the price of water accordingly. And so when the aquifer is low, the price of water goes up. When the water is high, the price of water goes down. And so it's a very free market system, right? And so it ensures that nobody undervalues water. On the other hand, uh, what it means is that if you're too poor, uh, you can only afford a cup of water, and somebody who's rich can afford gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons. You know, there's a saying actually in the West that, that water flows towards money, and, and this is very much that. You mentioned the Chinese. They wield enormous power in this story. Yeah. Um, in my mind, a lot of the story is really about people who plan and look ahead and people who don't. There's a contrast between uh, Las Vegas that planned and Phoenix that didn't, and they're, they're very different sort of outcomes. But there's also a big contrast between the United States that didn't plan and didn't anticipate and China who did. And so you're sort of seeing this widening gap of, of prosperity also based on whoever's planning and building and thinking ahead versus those people who are getting smacked upside the head by the changing circumstances. I promise we're going to get to the characters next, but I am fascinated by just how much thought you've given to the details of this world, which really is set possibly within our lifetimes, uh, fair to say. Yeah, no, it was deliberately near future, yeah. The clue to me in the book that it's within our lifetimes is at one point you talk about Britney Spears being a grandmother. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay. A hot grandmother. A hot grandmother. So Terrible. We, I was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Cut all of that. Oh, yeah. We're not cutting any of that. <laughs> but that, that's how you place us in time. But I, I, I do wonder, before you write, do you create a blueprint of your fictional world? Or do those details emerge as you're writing? Uh, the details typically emerge as I'm writing and even in rewrites. I, I did want this to be a very near future feeling story. I wanted it to feel like a story that could be happening to any of us. Um, and so I, I didn't want it to feel too futuristic. I didn't want everybody with cyber implants or anything. I didn't want us to be distanced from those characters and their stories. But there were sort of details that I did want to have in the story that would help the reader understand both what's going on in the world, but also that you know, it does give you that little taste of like, oh yeah, this isn't this year, this isn't next year, but it could be five years. And so like something like the clear sacks was sort of like that. Yeah, where... describe the clear sacks. So they're ubiquitous. Okay, so this clear sacks um, are a cheap water filtration device, basically. They're basically a plastic bag that people can pee into, and then you can squeeze the plastic bag and, and filter out the impurities and you have water again. And so it's a super cheap way for poor people to be able to drink their own pee. Um, 
Now, and you know that's that's disgusting, right? But but it's it's also world building. I mean, it tells you a lot about exactly where people are in the world. It tells you how desperate they are, and it also tells you how we tend to solve problems with technology. You know, we solve it and we say, "Oh, people are thirsty. Here, here's this you know cheap plastic thing that you can use." In the story, these plastic bags they're they're multi use, but you can't use them forever, so they they go bad basically, and then people throw them away, and then these clear sacks are blowing around on the streets because there's no trash pickup anymore, and so then the clear sacks are getting tangled up in the saguaro cactus, and they're getting hung up on the ocotillo, and so you sort of see this you know pseudo solved problem um, that also then you know you sort of learn about drought, you learn about poverty, you learn about you also learn about the physical landscape of Phoenix, and and one detail then goes a long way towards building out a sense of a, a lived-in world. Clear sex actually came much later in the story. They were not in an, in an initial draft at all. I see, um, part of a rewrite. And yeah, and as I was going back, I was like, I want this to feel more weird. And I was like, what can I do? <laughs> and I was like, clear sex, that's what it's going to be. And then I, I worked with the name for a while before I came up with one that sounded just gross enough. Peonia author Paolo Bagigalupi is my guest. His new sci-fi thriller, The Water Knife, is out in paperback. After a break, we'll meet his characters, including one he calls a 007 of water. And Bagigalupi tells us the idea for this novel came from a trip to Texas, where he says he was able to time travel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to my interview with science fiction writer Paolo Bagigalupi, who lives in Peonia, Colorado. His new climate change thriller, The Water Knife, is out in paperback. It's set in the near future, and it pits Las Vegas against Phoenix in a bloody water war. Las Vegas is thriving thanks to a cutthroat water manager. Phoenix is drying up, but the tables could turn. We spoke last year at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. The title of this book, The Water Knife, refers to a man named Angel Velasquez. And he's, he's a badass. What is a water knife? Water knives are, are sort of the, the 007s of water, basically. They, they work for Las Vegas, and, and Las Vegas has these agents that they send out to give someone an offer on their water rights that they can't refuse, or they're the ones who go out and blow up someone else's water treatment plant so nobody else can pump out of the river. They're the people who get it all done. And Angel is Catherine Case's lead water knife. Um, he's the guy who always gets the job done. Um, and Case and, is a, a very savvy water manager who has managed to keep the, the taps running in Vegas. Right, yeah. She's the water manager for Vegas, and she's the, probably the person with the most foresight in the entire story. She's the one who sort of looked around and, and sort of said, wow, we have terrible water rights. We're a city in a desert, and we desperately need our water, and we don't have enough. So how are we going to get that? And she started planning and, and making moves to make sure that happened, and one of those things was to hire a bunch of water knives. And, what, you know, Angel is also a thug. Um, he's sort of a refugee himself. He's uh, originally fled out of Mexico from the cartel states down there and has fled north and then sort of got tangled up with Catherine Case, and she was essentially salvation for him, that he could live in an arcology in return for just doing a bunch of leg breaking was the best deal that he'd ever been offered. I'd like to have you read a little of Angel's impressions when he visits Phoenix. So again, Phoenix, bone dry. He's coming from Vegas, where water's still running. Everything looked worse than the last time Angel had been here. More dilapidated, dust-covered businesses, more broken glass, more abandoned shopping plazas and strip malls, PetSmart, Parties to Go, Walmart, Ford dealerships, all standing empty, 
glass shattered and gutted. Women on the corners, boys in tight pants waving down cars at intersections, leaning in, doing whatever they needed to to get a little money, to buy a little water, to keep going for another day. If Angel wanted, he guessed he could pick up someone for the cost of a meal, a bath, maybe a chance to clean their clothes in his hotel tub. Ten dollars? Twenty to tip? People will prostitute themselves, essentially, for water. And you have a, another character who does that. Yeah, uh, another character uh, is uh, Maria Villarosa and her friend Sarah, and they're Texas refugees. They fled out of Texas when Texas fell apart, and, you know, Arizona has no love for Texas refugees. And so Maria's friend Sarah is a prostitute, and, and eventually Sarah sort of pulls Maria into her world. As this chaos grows in Phoenix, so uh, does a form of journalism you call the blood rags, which document the carnage of the water wars. And another central character in your book is an investigative journalist named Lucy Monroe. The gruesome murder of her friend leads her to what could be the biggest story of her career. Heck, it would probably be one of the biggest stories in history. Right. What can you say about it without... You Without know. spoilers. Exactly. Right. Um, so uh, Lucy is a, a character who, she's uh, a very hardened journalist, and, and she's been documenting sort of the collapse of Phoenix for about the last 10 years. And she started out as sort of an outsider watching this and sort of laughing at all the sad, stupid Phoenix people as they're going through their collapse. Um, and one of the terms that people use for the kind of work that she does is collapse pornography. You know, the writing about broken places, the taking the photos of the terrible gutted buildings. Um, you know, and there's a, sort of an a modern equivalent of that is like the fetishistic photography that we do of Detroit sometimes. You know, pornographic interest in how things fall apart. And she started out very much on the outside, but has slowly become sort of embedded in Phoenix life and has made friends in Phoenix and has become somewhat a part of the fabric of that city. And one of her sources and contacts and sort of friends is this guy, Jamie. And uh, Jamie works in the Phoenix Water Department. And Jamie has become convinced that he's found a game changer for Phoenix, something that will allow Phoenix to have all the water it would ever need and that would flip the power dynamics of the entire Colorado River. And then he winds up dead. The idea for this book about climate change and water scarcity came from a couple of places, as I understand. Um, You were online editor at High Country News for a time and worked with a lot of uh, smart journalists covering water there. But the gasoline on the fire was a trip you took to Texas. Yeah. So this was in 2011, and I went um, – I was down there for a science fiction convention, actually. And uh, it turned out I was in the middle of this pretty apocalyptic drought. And it was really interesting because uh, you were seeing all of these effects of a major drought on on the state. You were seeing – Farmers that were having to put their cattle down because the land couldn't support them. You were seeing crops that weren't going to grow for their full season. Towns that were running out of water. You were also seeing weird things like there were rolling brownouts because uh, there wasn't enough water in the reservoirs to generate hydroelectricity. And I myself actually got a heat stroke when I was down there. And that probably led to sort of my delirious rage at the whole thing. But, but, uh, a friend of mine, she just looked at me and she was like, you need to go in this swimming pool now. And of course, this strange thing is like in the middle of a drought, you also have a swimming pool. And, you know, 30 minutes later, I sort of came back to myself and I was like, wow, like, I think I was crazy. And she said, you were. (laughs) And it was like a strange thing to see that heat, you know, have that huge human toll on you. 
Well, so was this book written out of delirium? Yeah, pretty much. Um, this, the, well, the thing that struck, stood out to me was that this is a terrible drought. And then the thing that stood out to me was this looks an awful lot like most of the climate models say the future will be. So if this is actually the future, then what I'm doing right now while I'm delirious in Texas is I'm times traveling. I've actually just jumped in a time machine and I've gone to the future. And how does it look? And the answer is it looks scary as hell. And that was really striking to me. But the thing that was sort of like the icing on the cake was that at the same time as I was sort of looking at this drought, uh, Rick Perry was a viable presidential candidate. And he was going around holding prayer circles and praying for rain. And that really struck me because, you know, you, you're saying like you think, OK, so all of the data says we're headed towards more life like this. And the leadership, the respected leadership in this state and also in some ways in the nation is involved in magical thinking. And, and this, this does not lead to a good outcome. <laughs> you know, if we're going to win the future, we actually have to believe that the future exists, that it's coming at us. And, uh, and this guy clearly doesn't. And by extension, that means our democracy also doesn't. And, and so that was the moment when I really started thinking about wanting to write about a place that engages with reality and faces it and deals with it, like Las Vegas does in the story, and a place that lives in denial, like Phoenix. In the book, a religious sect has emerged called the Mary Perrys. Yeah. Is that related? And <laughs> Is that Rick Perry? I, the, <laughs> you know, I just wanted to give him credit where, where you know, <laughs> credit is due. Um, the, the Mary Perrys are, are these crazed religious sect people who sort of go around doing tent revivals and always are, are saying that rain is coming as they sort of self-flagellate themselves. And yes, that is very much... Uh, Rick really inspired me. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you a really pointed question. We're living with the effects of climate change now. We read about them every day or hear about them on the radio. It can be really depressing what makes you think people want to read a novel about all this stuff? Heck, if I know, I wouldn't. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I like romantic comedies. Like, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I, you know, in this way, this is not sure. an escapist novel in the least, unless what you hope to escape right. to is more doom. <laughs> Some of the characters come out okay-ish. No, no. I, well, okay, so the thing I think about this is, you're right. Like, I mean, the, you, there, is, there is bad news. And what I notice is that people don't like to read those stories. Um, they don't like to read those news stories. Um, I notice that if I've got a choice in the newspaper about where I'm going to go in the pages, well, which would I rather read about? You know, Apple's new iWatch or whatever the heck it is? Or would I rather read about, you know, more devastating drought in California? Hmm, let's see. Um, you know, there, there, we have a natural instinct to go towards things that are comforting. We have a natural instinct to want to be inside of a safe narrative or a, or a happy narrative. Um, the, the thing that I feel like uh, I want to do with my stories is I want to give people a ripping ride, a thriller, an experience, like an immersive experience that is a genuine entertainment. I mean, there's, there's no, no, no doubt in my mind that what I'm aiming to do is entertain, flat out. If I'm not entertaining my readers, I don't know why I would be writing fiction. But that said, you know, as long as you're being entertained, I can also throw in all these details <laughs> that you might have skipped in the newspaper. Um, and, and hopefully that those details stick in a way that maybe in the newspaper, either because we didn't read it, it didn't matter, 
or because it's not exactly contextualized. Um, and that's the other thing that I sort of like about writing science fiction particularly is that science fiction gives us this opportunity to contextualize the present. When I write something like The Water Knife, where all of the states are fighting over water, where there are real human consequences, and where, you know, we as readers then get to sit inside of the skin of a climate refugee. We get to, like, fight the battles of a water knife. We get to report on the tragedies that the reporter is reporting on. Then we can experience those things viscerally and see them viscerally. And ideally, that means that the next time that we pick up the newspaper and we see a news story, that that's contextualized in a different way because we've lived in the skin of the future. You clearly have a great capacity for imagining the worst. And I imagine that serves I'm you... I'm sorry. No, no, no. That has to serve you very well as a, as a fiction writer, and especially science fiction. But how does that affect your life outside of writing? In other words, are you, are you a very anxious person? Um, I am an anxious person. I, and the reason why I write the stories that I write is because I'm purging anxieties. If, if I'm reading certain pieces of news, if I'm looking at certain details about the present and the, the path that we seem to be moving, that fills me with anxiety. And so being able to write a story that sort of delineates those anxieties also means that I can sort of set them aside. It's cathartic. Um, yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, but that also means that once I've written it there, then I can still have a life here. <laughs> so you'd be a very Close unpleasant person if you weren't writing. Oh, no, I actually was. No, I was a terrible person when I wasn't writing. Yeah, no, you can ask my wife. She's out there. Um, uh, no, I, I, I'm anxious, depressed, and, and generally horrible. Um, and it's one of the reasons why when I was uh, a failure as a writer years ago, I, I'd been writing novels, and every novel would fail, and then I'd try to write another novel, and that one would fail, and I wrote a lot of novels. And, you know, there was a point where I was thinking about giving up writing because I clearly was not able to make it, and I never would. And the thing that brought me back to it, actually, was that I am a happier, more centered person when I write. Peonia author Paolo Bagigalupi is my guest. His new sci-fi thriller, The Water Knife, has just come out in paperback. Still ahead, if Bagigalupi can envision such a bleak future because of climate change, why did he decide to have a kid? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're listening back to a conversation with science fiction writer Paolo Bagigalupi. He lives in Peonia on the Western Slope. And his latest is a thriller called The Water Knife. It's set in the not-too-distant future. Climate change has wiped out major U.S. cities and coastlines. And Phoenix and Las Vegas are locked in a gruesome battle over water. The novel is now out in paperback. There are some really violent scenes in the book. We've we've intimated that already. Um, a character, and you, if you're sensitive to this stuff, this would be a time to turn the radio off, but only for a moment. Um, a character has her fingers eaten off by hyenas. Another character is dismembered. Uh, it's really hard to read. For me, is it hard to write? Uh a little bit. Sometimes when I like the character and I suddenly realize that the most reasonable thing... The world is harsh, and so there are certain things that when you, 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 you want to protect your character, but at the same time you want your character to live in, in this world that you've created, and the, that world has rules. And you can only protect your character so much, and so if they end up in a stupid place at a stupid time doing a stupid thing, something bad will happen to them. Um, and it does, and that is, that is a little unnerving. It, the story is violent. Um, frankly, it's actually far less violent than most of the source material that I use to get a bead on what I want to do with the story. You get positively 
cataclysmic at points. And I'll ju- just reading from the book, maybe in a thousand years, everyone will be living underground with only greenhouses touching the surface. Maybe in a thousand years, humanity would become a burrowing species, safely tucked underground for survival. I say this um, to ask a question about your son. He's out there right now. Who's in our audience. (laughs) If you can imagine such a bleak world, why have a child? Arjun, I just want you to know I love you and I'm really happy to have you. Um... Why have a child? Um, I think, honestly, the, the, it's, it's not quite like that. It's that you have a child and then you realize what you're giving him, that you only have the sense of responsibility after you have the child. Um, before then, I think having children is almost a, a, a pretty specific and selfish act. It's, it's really about you. It's about you thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was another me running around? Oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was another of my wife running around? That would be great. Let's make one of those. <laughs> Um, and that's, that's all ego-driven. And then you actually have your child and you realize the, the responsibility you hold towards that person who turns out is neither you nor your wife and actually depends on you for all good things. Mostly what, what having a child does is it gives you a sense of pressure. You can reflect on yourself day in and day out. Does this actually make my child's life better? You know, is he going to thank me in 30 more years? Will I have done the right thing by him? And I think that that equation used to be a lot simpler. It used to be just if you earned enough money so you could send your kid to college that you would have done right by your child or whatever. And now I think that we have another set of responsibilities. And you feel those more strongly, especially when you're working in the spaces that I I work in for my writing. And so do you think that your writing is of service or do you hope it's of service and that that somehow benefits your child beyond the bottom line? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, if you're going to, you know, whack down a bunch of trees and, and turn them into books, like, you sort of hope that the books do something good for the world. Um, I don't know, like, I mean, this might just be from my, my, my hippie upbringing or something, but, you know, my parents sort of, you know, unfortunately inculcated a lot of sense of social responsibility in me, and, uh, and that's, you know, it's a total pain in the neck. Um, <laughs> I actually tried to sell out. I, that was my first rebellion, was really tr- desperately trying to sell out. I went to work in China in business, and it was really hard for me. I just didn't, it, I didn't have it in me. You make many references in The Water Knife to the real-life book, really celebrated work of nonfiction called Cadillac Desert. Yeah. And uh, Mark Reisner wrote it in 1986 about disappearing water in the West. And it becomes pivotal in your story. I'll yeah. leave it at that. What impression did Cadillac Desert have on you? When I was growing up, actually, Cadillac Desert was one of those books that was on the shelf of people I knew. If you were an intellectual or if you were somebody who worked in, in resources in the West or if you were, you know, it all connected to sort of Western thinking. I think that, you know, there was a Reisner book that would be sitting there, Cadillac Desert, which is the strangest title of all time. Um, and so my first experiences of it were really as a child looking up at spines of books and seeing this particular book and what is that thing? But I think uh, that when I read it, uh, the thing that really stood out to me was, you know, there's all of this wisdom here, and it clearly has had actually no effect on us whatsoever. Um, and, and that's sort of this troubling thing. But the, the, the Reisner, really, I feel like he, he laid out so much about our relationship with water in the West. And he laid out so much about our relationship with our techno-obsession with, with dam building and with being able to pipe water here and there and to create prosperity where it had never been, to make the desert bloom, all of these things. 
our narratives of power and success and dominance um, over nature, right, and and control of nature. We as human beings know better than nature, and and to a certain extent, you can win at that. And then there's this moment where, well, maybe nat- nature slaps us back. And and he pointed a lot of fingers towards those those danger points. And then we continued to develop even more in the same spots that you know he's saying this is stupid. This is dumbest project ever. Another dumb project. Another project that would only have been funded with federal pork. Let's talk just a little bit about the science fiction label because I, in reading this book, thought it might put you in a box a bit. But this is based on all kinds of assumptions I suppose I have about science fiction. I think that if you if you say to someone, oh, this is a work of science fiction, they immediately picture... Um, Barbarella. Barbarella, sure. <laughs> I was going to go with Space Odyssey, but Rocket sure. ships, blasters, Barbarella. Barbarella. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah robots, and... Yeah. Um, but that's sure. so not this book. Um, uh, yeah, this is... I think this is the difference. You know, when, when I use the symbol words science fiction, what those symbol words mean to me and what those symbol words are going to mean to someone else... Science fiction is a word that sort of morphs as it travels almost from one person's lips to another person's head. And I feel like uh, it is it is frustrating sort of because I will tell people I write science fiction. And the first thing they say is, oh, I don't read that. And you're like, ow. <laughs> Thanks. I'm sorry. I hate you. Um <laughs> But, but, you know, but then if you say, oh, well, actually, I, you know, well, with this book, it, you know, I'm writing about drought in the Southwest. I'm writing about a water war between Phoenix and Las Vegas as the Colorado River runs dry. And then the person is like, oh, yeah, we had this terrible drought back in, you know, whenever. And they remember a drought, and it was terrible, and they remember all sorts of details. So, wow, that sounds like a really interesting book. You're like, it's science fiction. <laughs> and so what I found is that, like, the, depending on who I'm talking to, I will change, you know, how I describe it. Is it a post-apocalyptic book? If it'll help you read the book, yes. Is it a dystopian book? If it'll help you read the book, yes. Is it a science fiction book? Yes. You know, whatever, it, whatever you need it to be on the outside so you'll pick it up and actually read it and see what's actually on the inside, um, I will totally agree. <laughs> because, yeah, those uh, labels that we use that, you know, sort of, are handy in the, in the shorthand, are, are really limiting um, otherwise. I thought we'd wrap up with a question about a recent blog post on your website, windupstories.com. And the title of the post was, When People Hate You and or Your Writing. Quoting here, If you're a writer, you're going to run into a lot of people who don't like you, who don't like your work, who don't like your values, or the values they think you represent. Has this been your experience? That, <laughs> that you, you nodded yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, this, this is the experience of every writer at some point. Um, I mean, anyone who has the audacity to actually say, you know, to the world, I exist. Hello. Here I am, you know, is immediately a magnet for the attacking crows, if you will. Are you getting better at dealing with that? No. Um, no, actually, I'm still working very hard to deal with that. Um, the relationship between the writer, the reader, and the general populace is much tighter and closer and stranger than it used to be. Um, I can open up my Twitter feed and, and see somebody say, well, I can't decide who's more overrated, Paolo Bacigalupi or Anne Leckie. And they've tagged both of us. It's like, well, thank you so much for sharing that today. That was, that was a wonderful little warm-up for the morning for me. Like... <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, a friend of mine's comment was, well, it's neither is as overrated as this tweet. But, you know, the, um, but, but there it is. I mean, you know, the, 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 there's, a, there's a casual level of sort of like social violence that goes on in social media all the time. And that's just kind of like, it seems to apparently be the acceptable water that we're swimming in at the moment. I think we're, we're still learning how to actually be human on the Internet. Um, but there's other stuff where, you know, the, the, somebody will say, oh, I've decided because you write about climate change, you're another one of those damn liberals who needs to be, you know, strung up on the fence line. Or, you know, oh, I, just because you've written about some character who's a minority, you're either a racist because you wrote the, the character wrong or you're, uh, you know, uh, an apologist of, you know, minorities because you decided to put brown people in your story at all and so now we're going to attack you for that. You know, there's always stuff that's going on where somebody's got some kind of drum they want to beat and the, the best drum that they can find is your head. Um, and that's kind of, you know, it's part of the game apparently. Um, it's not much fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. You bet. Peonia author Paolo Badgigalupi. His new book, The Water Knife, is out in paperback. It's a near-future climate change sci-fi thriller. We spoke last year at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Kara Schiff and Sam Brash. You can follow us on Twitter, at Colorado Matters, Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Nice to spend time with you. <laughs>